It is by your grace that we stand before you, sit before you in this place um, to worship. And thus we pray that by your grace you would attend your word by your spirit in such a way that we would hear it, believe it, listen well. And Father, that by it we would be encouraged, we would have hope. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second Thessalonians in chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to read this chapter. Um, I, I thought last week I would complete it or make as many comments upon it as I had hoped, but I didn't, and I realized I won't finish it this week either. So, but we'll read it all because it fits, it fits together. So 2 Thessalonians, please, in chapter 1. Hear the word of God. But Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. For the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every res resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now... You made mention last Sunday as we began that Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica. He's writing to this church, a relatively new church. He hadn't been formed very long. He'd only been there a little while. And then he was forced to leave. But, but now he writes back to them because he's concerned for them because he wants them to be able to or enabled to persevere. That is, keep on believing and Keep on following the Lord Jesus. Now this theme, as we mentioned again last week, this theme of perseverance is one that, that, that really is, 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 is very pervasive in the New Testament. Because you see, when we come to follow Jesus, it is a lifelong, really, an eternal long thing. We're following after him. It changes our identity completely. It changes who we really are. We now become believers 
and followers of Christ were in the kingdom of God, meaning that we're under his rule and we're joyfully under his rule, his rule as a gracious rule. We're in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said to us, when you put your hand to the plow, understand there is no turning back. Jesus said that even those who are being persecuted, that those who endure to the end will be saved. You see, there is a necessity for persevering. We must continue on in the faith. We read last week, so I'm going to read again because it's a a reminder that I need the apostle rights of those who have been saved for the purpose of being presented to God holy before him. He said, all this is true. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says that you must, we must, I must, you must, continue on, endure to the end, persevere. And this perseverance, you see, is not simply a must for us, but it's also a promise to us. God has also promised to enable us to persevere. This benediction at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5 is is that sense. He writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Thank you, Holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, saying, may this be true of you. It's, it's It's a bit of a prayer. But then he sort of benedicts. He gives them this blessing. And he says, He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. In other words, God will ensure that this actually comes to pass. So our perseverance is a necessity, but it's also, you see, a promise. It's this promise to us from God. So much a part of of our assurance is this promise of God that we will persevere to the end, is that the church, at least in previous generations, has come up with, with a particular expression that can be both helpful and unhelpful. The expression, many of you may have grown up with this expression, is that once saved, always saved. Now that is true. However, it can be a bit confusing, especially when we see those who seem to have been once saved leave the faith. And we wonder then, what of this promise of perseverance, this assurance that we have when there are some who seemed to be saved, seemed not always to be saved. Well, that's beyond us this morning, that bit of confusion. But there's a second bit of confusion that can be attached to this expression, once saved, always saved. It gives us the impression then that it's so much all done that there is nothing then that we need to tend to. It simply will happen. And we don't have to be engaged in this whole process of or effort in perseverance. And and that's a dangerous mindset. 
And there isn't anything that we now need to tend to in relation to our perseverance that we just sort of need to sit in the pew or glide through life and it's, it's all simply going to take care of itself. Because when God calls us, when we put our hand to the plow and all of that, we're engaged in this. It's thorough. He's at work in us and we're working this out. And so we're engaged in this perseverance. And so therefore, he gives to us means by which we persevere. Means by which that we take advantage of to be enabled to persevere to the end. Now that's the way life is, isn't it? If you want to have if you want to be healthy, there are means to good health. At least I've been told. There's eating right and exercise and getting enough sleep and all of that. Um, for students, you see, if you want to graduate, there's a means to that end. You study and go to class and so forth, you know, bake cookies for your professors, uh, whatever. You know, there's means to graduating. If you're an athlete, there's means to being successful, if you will. If you're in marriage, there's means to that end of a successful marriage of communication and so forth and so on. And so there's means, you see, to this perseverance. And we find two of these means for our perseverance in this chapter one is by way of the word of God, what we're taught, and two, by way of prayer. And, and so Paul writes to them, instructs them to give them wisdom, but you see this perseverance that comes by way of the word of God doesn't simply give us wisdom, but it also gives us hope, encourages us to persevere. It speaks to us and says, since this is true, you can be steadfast. Since this is true, you can have this hope in you. And you see, for Christians to be able to persevere, which remember we said last week, isn't just simply holding on by the skin of your teeth, but it's actually flourishing in faith and love. For us to be able to persevere, you see, requires that we have hope. That we have hope. That we know that that which is to come is so good that whatever it is that we may experience now that's hard and difficult will be worth it, you see, to have hope for what is to come. And so as he gives to them this word, he is giving it to them, this chapter one, to give them hope. And then he prays for them. And so the questions, which we'll deal with this week and next, the questions are these. One is, what does he say to them that gives them hope? or at least, is intended to give them hope. And, and that's a very personal thing because, because it's intended to give us hope as well. This is the means by which we persevere. We say, God, how can, I, how can I be sure that I'm going to persevere to the end? And he says, well, I'm with you. Follow my word. Receive my encouragement and live by it. And you'll persevere to the end. And then the question is, what does he pray for them? that enables them to persevere. In other words, what's his prayer? And that has a twofold effect for us. One is that this is a prayer that he's praying for them to enable them to persevere. But it teaches us then how we ought to pray so that we will persevere to the end. Are you with me? You got it? Word of God, praying. What's he teach them? What's he say to them to encourage them? What's he say to us to encourage us? 
How does he pray for them? How are we to pray so that we persevere to the end? Sometimes it appears as if we're just sort of hanging on. And it may be that we're just sort of hanging on because the circumstances are difficult. We get that. But it may be that we feel like we're just hanging on because we don't really meditate upon, we're not really filled with the hope that comes to us from the scripture. We haven't taken advantage of that means of God's grace, that means to enable us to persevere. And perhaps we're not praying rightly. And so we find perseverance to be a difficult thing. We find it to be a great struggle to maintain faith, a great struggle to follow Christ. And so those two things from this chapter, this week and next. Now, he tells them three things that should, that is, that's intended to give them hope. We talked about one last week. We'll deal with the other two this week. The one we talked about last week is he said to them, he says, I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted. That's the context. That's the reason he's so concerned about them because he knows that when suffering comes that it makes it more difficult, if you will, can make it more difficult to persevere for all kinds of reasons, weariness and, and wondering, what's God doing here? Does he really love me and all of that? And so you see, he's laying this out for them and he's saying that your suffering, your being persecuted, is evidence that God is right about you. That God's judgment about you Christians is right. The fact that you're being afflicted, the fact that you're suffering, shows that God's declaration about you, his judgment about you is right. And his declaration about you is that you're really Christians, that you're worthy of the kingdom of God. And you say, I wish the evidence would be easy life. I wish it would be good health. I wish it would be lots of money. Why can't it be that? You know, this kind of blessing. Why does the evidence have to be uh, being persecuted and affliction? Well, because he says, in this time, this time of perseverance, this time between Christ has come and Christ is coming again, we live in a world that isn't consistent with follow after love the things of God and so since he's called us to that then we're in conflict with the world in which we live and Jesus said they'll treat you the way they treated me they hated me they'll hate you the apostle Paul would write early on as he's planting churches and this is really not a good marketing strategy at all, you see, in planting churches. And he would tell the people who would be forming in these early churches, he would say, you know, we have to go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. And he would tell Timothy, this young pastor, who had planted a church and he was overseeing this new church in Ephesus and he wrote to Timothy and he says, well, don't worry, Timothy. Let me encourage you with these words. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. You see, it just simply happens, he says. And, and, and he's telling them that 
to encourage them, to give them hope. And, and the hope that comes from that, as we said, is to realize the normalcy of that. When that happens, people turn against us because of the faith. That doesn't mean that God is abandoning us. It doesn't mean that it isn't true. In fact, God is saying, no, it does mean that it is true. Look, this is what I said. This is what I, I told you would happen. This is what happened to Jesus. This is what happens in, in these situations. Of course, it isn't universal. It doesn't happen with everybody and all the time and all of that. But he says, when this happens to you, not if, but when this happens to the church, realize this is evidence that yes, you're worthy of the kingdom. You're really the church. You're really followers of Jesus. And so he, he lays uh, all of that uh, out for them. Now, you see, when we go through these difficulties, this give evidence that we really do belong to the Lord, it doesn't mean that we can't flee the difficulties when they arise. Paul did on various occasions. He would flee the difficulties. They happened. He's not a masochist. He didn't stay there and say, continue to beat me. If he had opportunity to leave, he did. But you see, these people in Thessalonica have no opportunity to leave. It's their home, isn't it? It doesn't mean that you can't pray that God would, re- it would, would relieve the persecution. In fact, he's going to ask them in chapter 3. He says, uh, verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be deliv- delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So it doesn't mean that you can't pray that you'll be delivered from this, from the persecution that's happening. It doesn't mean that you can't help alleviate the sufferings of other believers. In fact, much of the, the, the language of the New Testament about taking care of widows and taking care of orphans and visiting those in prison was the result of persecution in the church. And if there are widows because of that, which there were, and if there are orphans because of that, because of persecution in the church, and there were. Um, there are those in prison because of... Don't, don't, don't not associate with these people. Make sure you care for them. So that's that sense of it there particularly as well as the general case as well. So all of that's certainly true. And it isn't in our situation where we have opportunity to advocate for those who are being persecuted. Yes, we certainly should. But he says, listen, understand that the very fact of the persecution that's coming your way is evidence that you're worthy of the kingdom of God, that God is right about what the kingdom of God is like, and God is right about you. But now he goes on to this word, which is given uh, to bring encouragement and hope. He says, this is evidence, verse 5, of the righteous judgment of God, that is your persecution and endurance, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you 
was believed. And you heard that right. He says on the one hand, and we'll get to this in a minute, there's relief for you who are believers. But he said, for those who are afflicting you, I'll pay them back. There is retribution. Now there are times you see that we think that's ungodly of God. To speak like that. To bring that kind of payback. That eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. In fact, there are times, and I've read this, I read it just recently in a really good systematic theology. By really good, I mean a person I think. It's very trustworthy in what he writes. I read his books. And I like his this big, thick, systematic theology thing that you can read or prop small children up at dinner. It's one of those kinds of very thick books. But he wrote this line. I may have to write him about it. He wrote, If I were God, I would not punish people like this. And you see, when we say that, What we're saying is that we must be more righteous or better or more holy or or more compassionate, more loving, more just than God. God says he's going to do this, then, then that's right and good. We can't evaluate him. We don't stand above him and say, well, if I were God, I... It just simply means if we were God, we'd be wrong, you see. So that's the danger of those. Now, I understand the sentiments. I don't like to think about hell, frankly. In fact, I find that when I try to, I have difficulty maintaining attention too long because it becomes, if I really think about it, it becomes overwhelming. Now that I understand. Now that I I understand that this is not an easy thing to think about people being paid back. But it simply is true. Because you see, there's two elements to the comfort that comes from this exhortation from the apostle. And that is, number one, we need to realize that God is just. And number two that he really does care for us, that he isn't oblivious to what is happening to us, even though it may seem like he's doing nothing about it at any moment in time. And you see, the fact that there is a justice aspect to God's character, it's even weak to say it that way, that God is in himself just, is a better way to say it, The fact that God is just is the very ground of our own salvation, the very ground of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it isn't simply that Christ died because God loves us. He did. But he also died because God is just. D.A. Carson, 
a New Testament scholar, teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, mostly travels and writes books. In this book called A Call to Spiritual Formation, writes this. He says, in fact, the Christian gospel is solidly based on some elementary notions of retribution. Where evil occurs, it must be paid back or, or God himself is affronted. If God forever overlooks evil, ostensibly on the ground that he's loving and forbearing, is he not also betraying the fact that he's pathetically unconcerned about injustice? In other words, he's saying, how can God simply overlook injustice and still be good and still be moral and still be God and still be righteous and holy and all of that? If he overlooks it, how is that good? The truth is that every Christian who has thought long and hard about the cross, I love expressions like that because he's saying, if you don't agree with me, then you just simply haven't thought long and hard about the cross. But he's right here, I would say. The truth is that every Christian who has thought long and hard about the cross begins to understand that God is not merely a stern dispenser of justice, nor merely a lover who lavishly forgives but the sovereign who is simultaneously perfect in holiness and perfect in love. In other words, it isn't right to, to read judgment passages and think God is just this stern dis, dispenser of justice. It's, it's all he is. Nor is it right to, to read passages about the love of God and think that he simply lavishes love. But God is all of that. Perfect justice and perfect love. His holiness demands retribution. It simply does. That's justice. His holiness demands retribution. His love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. The cross simultaneously stands as the irrefutable evidence that God demands retribution and cries out that it is the measure of God's love. You see, when we look at the cross, we see all of that. The justice of God. How could you not see it? How could you not see retribution? The question, why did Christ die? Because of the sins of sinners. Why must he die for the sins of sinners? so that they could be reconciled to God. Why must he die for the sins of sinners for them to be reconciled to God? Because that's the thing that keeps them from God. God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, you see. That is why in the Christian view of things, forgiveness is never detached from the cross. You see, that's, that's the great slippage in the American, maybe the worldwide, I don't know that as well, the American church the slippage of forgiveness away from the cross. Love away from justice. So that we only speak of the cross in terms of the love of God. And we miss the holy justice of God. That's why this great expression, I think, when I think of the cross, hyphenated word, Holy love, right? Holy love. The, the just love of God. 
In other words, forgiveness is never the product of love alone, still less of mockish sentimentality. Forgiveness is possible only because there has been a real offense and a real, a real sacrifice to offset that offense. And, and the reason there's been a real sacrifice to offset that real offense is because of the love of God. In fact, when Paul writes Romans, that's what he's struggling with is he's talking about the grace of God. And so he comes to Romans in chapter 3. Or he's going to talk about the grace of God. He sets this up, Romans 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Well, all that's about the death of Christ to satisfy the wrath of God. Or as our friend Jerry Bridges puts it, to exhaust it, to drink to the very last drop the wrath of God from the cup of wrath, right? That's what that's about. Then he says, this was to show God's righteousness. This was to show the death of Christ was to show that God is righteous. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's the question, isn't it? How can God pass over sins? Throughout all the Old Testament, he passed over sins. He had this symbolic sacrifice of this unblemished lamb, but how did that do anything? And, and, and he forgave people in the Old Testament. He saved people in the Old Testament. How can he, how can he overlook that? How can he overlook injustice? How can he overlook the evil that human beings perpetrate on others? I mean, isn't that the question? The question, if there is a God in heaven, then how can he allow this kind of evil to continue on the face of the earth? And the answer is, there will be justice. Either in Christ, for those who believe, or in themselves, for those who don't. Justice will be done. You see, this is a very unsatisfying world in which we live in the context of justice. Very unsatisfying. I mean, just think, and I use him as an example often because he's such an easy one, but if we think of Adolf Hitler, and the very fact that he got out of everything by just killing himself. That's not satisfying at all to anyone who thinks about justice. Ask any who suffered in concentration camps. Read their stories. But God says, oh, there will be justice. Now graciously, he's meted out that justice upon his son Jesus for all who believe. But for those who don't. And so Carson goes on to write this. He says, In the worst case, people may become so hardened in their vaunted independence 
that they pour scorn on those who've come to know the joys of God's forgiveness. They may even take it upon themselves to do as much damage to them as they can. That's what happened in, in the church in Thessalonica. They're being persecuted. But he says, that was the situation in the Thessalonian believers faced implacable opposition to everything they held dear. What then is the result? Well, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He is just. We, we mustn't ever doubt that. Justice delayed isn't justice denied. God's aware of what's happening. And he is in fact, he is in fact just. And so he says to these who do not believe, and they're, they're described this way, they're described as those who don't know God, really better as we understand the context, uh, those who refuse to know God. They were in Thessalonica, the, the gospel had been there, they were persecuting people who believed because of their belief, and so they would need to know what they believed. And so they, they had information about God, and Romans 1 tells us that we all have enough information about God to be without excuse. So they knew him in that sense, but they didn't embrace him. They didn't acknowledge God as God or give him thanks. And also it says that they did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that's how the, it's put often. You see, the gospel, to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus isn't simply an invitation. It's something to be obeyed. And to obey it means to believe it, to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ, you see. And they didn't, and so they would be paid back. And the payback is that they would be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his mighty power. And so the existence, as it's called here, eternal destruction, that is, it goes on forever, eternal, and its destruction, they will always be in ruin. They will never be made whole. And the reason is that because they're shut out from the presence of the Lord Jesus, that is to say, from his saving power. He's the one who makes whole. And they said, we do not want to be made whole by Jesus. We do not know God. We refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the punishment clearly fits the crime, if you will. Here they are getting what they deserve. They'll always be in ruin. And thus when we read of such eternal destruction, it's referred to in the scripture as being an outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's called eternal punishment. We feel the misery of that. Eternal fire. We see the torment of that. Eternal destruction. We see the ruin of that. That's the justice of God. The parable I read earlier in the service of this rich man in hell, if you will. It's fascinating to me, and I don't want to over 
interpret a parable, but it's always fascinating to me that, that we, we see no change in this man. I would think that he would say to Lazarus, hey, bud, sorry. I didn't treat you very well on earth. I get it now. I'm really sorry I didn't. I should have sort of helped you and fed you and all, but not at all. In fact, he's still his own self-centered self. He's saying, Father Abraham, could you get my slave Lazarus to get me some water? Because really, I, I'm in anguish here, and, and, and I'm the only one that matters. The misery of that. The ruin of that. The eternal destruction of that. So God is saying, I'm just. Don't ever think that when you're being persecuted for your faith, that I'm unjust. But also he says to them, and don't ever think that I don't care for you. And that's easy to do. It's easy when life is going hard in a variety of ways, but especially in this way, when, when we're being persecuted for our faith, that we think that God really doesn't care about us. I mean, how can he let someone treat me like this? I have to confess that there's many prayers that I start out by saying, hey God, this is Bill, your son, I belong to you. <laughs> and if that's the case... Why is this happening to me, you see? And it can feel like God doesn't care about us. But he says, no, 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 no. I don't miss anything. I really do care for you. And I'll avenge, I'll avenge all that has come against you. I really, really will. Because you see, no one really, I mean, it's unjust. No one should really suffer for believing in Jesus. It's a good thing to believe in Jesus. We'll spend all eternity not suffering because we believe in Jesus. It's, it's, it's unjust for someone to afflict someone because they believe in in Jesus. It's unjust to be ridiculed for believing in Jesus, and yet we will be afflicted and we will be ridiculed for believing in Jesus. It's unjust to be called a bigot or immoral because we believe in Jesus. And as we have been, but we and we will be called such things thought of in such ways. It's unjust to be forced by law or constrained by culture to enable another to sin. And yet, we have been and we will be forced by law and constrained by culture in such ways. But we mustn't think that this is because God doesn't care for us. He really does. You know, I was thinking, if, 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 you, if your father saw you being beaten and ridiculed and mocked and hurt and did nothing about it and he had the authority and the power to do so, you'd think, come on, Dad, don't you care for me? Well, this is his way. This is God's way of saying, no, no, I do care for you. I know what's going on here. And trust me in the midst of this because what you'll see is that this suffering that you're going through will actually Cause your faith to flourish. Cause your love for others to flourish. 
and will give you hope because it, it will mark you out as really being one of mine and this will enable you even to persevere even more. I'll make sure all of that really, really does happen and know this too, that I'll bring you relief. You see, on that day when, when I avenge, I'll bring you relief. On that day when I'll avenge all the injustice against you by those who do not know me and, and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, on that day, I will also reverse every opinion about you because I'll bring the good opinion about you that you do, in fact, belong to me and I'll bring you relief. In fact, that relief even starts now as we have hope. When we read Psalm 121 that I read earlier, that the, these, these pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem and they're singing this Psalm 121 and, and they're going for the, the great feasts and they're walking and they're, they're seeing the mountains. And they say, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Well, not from here, not from the mountains. It comes from the one who's the maker of the mountains, the one who made heaven and earth. He's watching over me. He's not going to sleep or slumber. He's going to make sure I persevere, that my foot won't slip as I'm walking to Jerusalem. He's, he's going to make sure I maintain on the path. That's really true, and he will. He really will help us. James writes that when we experience difficulty, we're to count it joy because the end result is in, of that is that we will lack nothing. So he'll bring us relief even now. But on that day, he'll bring us great relief because you see, when he comes, we'll get the opposite of what those who do not know him and do not obey his gospel, we'll get the very presence of the Lord Jesus and all of his saving power and all of his majestic um, uh, strength and power to create for us a new heavens and a new earth and to transform us completely. And we'll be glorified in him and we will marvel at him, this passage says. You know what that means, don't you? You say, listen, trust me. A day will come when no matter what you've been through, you'll see me and you'll look at me and you'll say, that was right. You'll marvel. You'll say everything that he ordained to come to pass in my life was necessary. I see it. Even the suffering, even the persecution, even the ridicule, even the mocking, even the being ostracized, whatever it is in the context of life, you'll be able to say, you'll marvel at him. You'll say, wow. I never saw it like that. And now I do. You'll be able to say with the apostle who writes later after he wrote Second Corinthians and Thessalonians, when he writes to the church in Rome eventually, and he says this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's saying that there by faith a day will come when we know it by sight, we'll see the Lord Jesus, we'll marvel at him, and we'll say, whatever that was, that isn't anything compared to what this is. Can I say that the message of 
this section, this passage, this word to enable us to persevere. God is saying, trust me. I'm just. And I really do care for you. And we say, can I? And he says, look at Jesus. He was ridiculed. He was scorned. He was beaten unjustly. He was the son of God. He was killed. He was glorified. You will see that glory and you will be glorified in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that you would, by every word in the scripture, give us hope. Even this one. That we would know that, in fact, you do care for us, that you are just. And Father, we're not to relish in the misery of those who hurt us We're still to love them as Jesus said, even our enemies were to pray for them as he put it. We're to bless them and not curse them and not take vengeance upon them, but we're to know that you are just and that you really do care for us. And so I pray, God, that that gives us hope. Many today are in need of hope. We pray for those who have lost family members who are dear to them, Brian McCall and Kim Vitt and their families on the death of their of their father, for Phil Oberzan on the death of his grandmother, for the Flory family on the death of Mary Flory, mom and grandmother, and to so many, for Allison Borger on the death of her mom, and for others who've recently lost loved ones or anticipate such, Father, I... I pray that you give us great hope to know that you do, in fact, care for us. For Emma and Stephen, as they, perhaps today in labor, perhaps today Emma gives birth, perhaps tomorrow. But I pray, God, that you would be with them, that this labor and delivery would go well, that you would be with them in every way. And that little Asa would be born healthy. If he needs this surgery that's anticipated, Father, I pray that it's soon and and heals. Thanks for the blessings that we see in the course of our lives. Thank you for relationships that we have that sustain. Thank you for your word that sustains. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. Thank you, Father, uh, for the kindnesses that we say day in and day out. Thank you for the help and the protection that you give to us, the provision that you give to us. Thank you for, for babies. We give you thanks for Tom and Ellie uh, Grubbs on the birth of, of uh, their child uh, yesterday as well. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful on the one hand that you've spared us much of the affliction that many of our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries have gone through, yet we don't presume upon that and uh, realize that such could be 
true for us in the future, if not already. And so I pray that you give grace to us, that we rely upon your word, and that we pray. And that you enable us, through whatever comes, to persevere. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.